Well, it's a great pleasure to be asked to lead off a series um, on the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of a person who's actually a great hero of mine, always has been, um, though as it will become clear in the coming few minutes, not a comfortable hero at all. Um, the 20th century um, had its fair share of martyrs, Christian martyrs, um, in many countries. Um, and they were very different sorts of people. Some were very ordinary folk who found themselves in the position where they end up having to give their life for their faith. Some were brilliant uh, in their various fields, um, and some were specifically called into dangerous mission fields, and uh, some were just caught up in the events of history. Uh, if this was the Roman Catholic Church, um, there's a process uh, of canonization of people like that, and I, I'm not going to ask you what you think of that process, um, but in that process, one person who almost certainly would, had he been a Catholic, have got um, uh, caught, uh, involved in the process of canonization would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He, however, was a Lutheran pastor in the German church, um, and the Protestant traditions, which Anglicanism for, is for this purpose at least a part, uh, don't formally canonize people. We do kind of give them honor and respect and take their memory seriously and hopefully uh, allow ourselves to be challenged by their witness and their example. And for my money, there are very few people of the, from the 20th century who do that more forcefully for us. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was, a, was no ordinary person. Um, a biography of him written about 10 years ago uh, had the subtitle, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. Uh, which is interesting, and you'll see why that, uh, they chose that subtitle in a minute. Um, though he was also a very sophisticated theologian, and I'm not sure that uh, those four words, Pastor, Martyr, Martyr, Prophet, Spy, captured that sense very well. His most famous book is The Cost of Discipleship, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but I want to focus just for a few minutes, first on his life, secondly on his legacy, and thirdly on the challenge that I think he represents to us. Firstly, his life then, born 1905 in Breslau, now part of Poland, but then part of Germany, uh, a largely Catholic city, but born into a Lutheran family. Uh, his father was a psychiatrist and neurologist, and it was not a particularly religious family. There's no real evidence that any of the others had much to do with church, at least, uh, at least uh, when he was being brought up. He was very young when they moved to Berlin. Um, he was one of a family of eight, one of whom was killed in the First World War. Um, and the others mostly, the males, I'm afraid it's the time when males had careers and females got married, um, the males um, uh, mostly went on to be either lawyers or something in the medical world, uh, and the daughters married people who were in the uh, um, medical world or, or lawyers. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer rather shocked his family when he was only about 14 by announcing, so this is just after the First World War, announcing that he wanted to go uh, study theology and become a Lutheran pastor. This was uh, greeted as a decision for a rather infradig sort of a career and certainly didn't get his father's particular blessing. But he persisted. Uh, he went to Tübingen University, one of the great German universities. Um, and uh, in 1930, he went to America and he studied under Reinhold Niebuhr. 
Now, you may or may not know that name, and you may think it's a German. He wasn't, in fact, he was an American, and he was one of the best-known theologians of that era. Uh, he lived in New York. He um, attended a thing called the Harlem Abyssinian Baptist Church, uh, which is where he met a particular individual who gave him the notion of costly grace and cheap grace, of which you will hear more, particularly next week. He returned in 1931 to Germany. Um, the clouds were are on the horizon by that time, but only on the horizon. Uh, it wasn't necessarily obvious at that point that the Nazis were going to take over. Uh, he became uh, on the, uh, a pastor at the St. Matthias Church in Berlin, which still exists. Um, it made it through the war largely undamaged, although it is now a cultural center rather than a, a functioning church. And then, of course, only two years later, uh, you have the Nazi takeover of power in January 1933. And then the clouds very definitely start to thicken overhead. The, uh, the first impact of this on the German church was the so-called German Christian movement. Um, this was a movement that essentially subordinated Christian activity to a sense of German destiny and superiority in the European context. And it is interesting to note that something like 70% of German pastors signed up to the German Christian movement, um, which succeeded in mid-1933 in getting the so-called Aryan paragraphs built into the uh, governance of the church. The Aryan paragraphs were the paragraphs which the Nazis required any public body to have in their constitution, uh, banning the employment of Jews and Slavs. And this went into the church governance in most parts of Germany as early as the summer of 1933. Bonhoeffer was one of the noisy resistors of this, against this. He moved in Lon to London in uh, late 1933. He wanted to build up some international contacts and he thought that London was a good place to do that. He served for several years in Sydenham. I bet you didn't know there was a German church in Sydenham. It was bombed in the war, um, but rebuilt. Um, and it is, I think, still functioning now in Sydenham. Um, and he also participated some of the time in a church which does still exist. It's an ancient 18th century German church in Whitechapel, which you can go and see. It doesn't function as a church any longer, and so it's more of a museum. But it is a museum to the fact that throughout the 19th and early 20th century, there was quite a German community living in London. Anyway, that's where uh, Bonhoeffer ministered. And in 1935, he went back to Germany and participated in the training of pastors in what was increasingly an underground, non-German Christian movement church, mostly in what is now East Germany. Eastern Germany, I should say, and, and, and Poland, actually. Um, but all of the time, the pressure was building by that time, and the arrests started to be made. In 1937, he writes The Cost of Discipleship when he's just 32 years old, a book which is by any standards one of the great Christian books of the 20th century. But the arrests were coming on, and in 1939, Bonhoeffer decided that the, and indeed in 1938, the activity in, uh, of training of pastors was closed down by the Gestapo, and in 1939, he decided to leave for America to go back to uh, New York City. 
Almost as soon as he got there, he felt he'd made a mistake. He felt he'd left the place that he ought to be, that he was challenged to be. And so he turns round almost as soon as he arrived and take the last passenger steamer from New York to Germany before the war broke out and went back to his home country. There, during the war, he became increasingly involved in, um, a, in the kind of covert resistance. And in fact, he worked for several, two or three years with the German military intelligence, so the official German military intelligence, where there were a number of other people who were in effect acting as double agents. And this is the point of that subtitle of the biography, uh, Pastor, Nata, Prophet, Spy. He worked for military intelligence and was in effect building contacts through Sweden and through Switzerland, both of which he visited, uh, with Bishop Bell of Chichester. And at one point they managed to get a message from the resistance via Bonhoeffer and Bell to the British Prime Minister, Churchill, um, explaining that there was a resistant movement and looking for support. This was not accepted. He wrote at that point, the ultimate question for a responsible person is not how to extract themselves heroically from the situation, but how the coming generations shall live. He was arrested in 1943 uh, and sent to a prison in Berlin, Tegel, Tegel Prison in Berlin. Those of you who know it, it's just on the outskirts where the airport is now. Um, and spent 18 months in that prison uh, during which he conducted a correspondence, which is remarkable, um, letter, personal letters, reflections on the state of affairs, thinking about philosophy and theology, uh, and I'll come back to it in a second. He also um, had by that time a fiancée, um, and he was conducting a sort of personal correspondence with her, and all of this was only published after her death in the 1970s. In April 1945, the notebooks of the head of the German military intelligence were discovered by the Gestapo. Hitler personally ordered that everybody involved should be immediately executed, and Bonhoeffer, who was by that time in Flossenburg concentration camp, in April 1945, April the 9th to be specific, uh, next Monday Thursday will be the 75th anniversary, he was taken out and hung along with his elder brother and two of his brothers-in-law. He was just 39. So that's his life, his legacy, um, mainly in his writings and in reverse chronological order. You have those letters and papers from prison that I've just mentioned. They were essentially his last legacy in terms of written material. Um, uh, very moving, if you've ever read, you don't really need to read it all, but dipping into it, it's very moving because it's so actual. It's so prosaic, some of it. Um, it includes the letters to his fiancée that I've mentioned, and if you read those, it's, it's clear that this wasn't necessarily a relationship that was going to last. It's not, he, she was a lot younger than he was, it was a bit of an arranged thing by her grandmother, and it wasn't really clear how deep the relationship was. Uh, but it's so human on both sides. It's a bit like, for those of you who uh, know a bit of uh, early 19th century English literature, the letters between Keats and his fiancée, which were prosaic. People wanted to believe this is a marvellous romantic relationship, and actually they weren't. They were bickering quite a lot of the time. 
and there's a little bit of that. But it's also um, a whole series of letters where he's reflecting on the nature of what does it mean? What does it really mean to be a Christian in modernity? He comes up with a phrase, religionless Christianity, which gets a lot of commentary after the war. And in many ways, it's astonishingly prescient. We are, he, writes, he writes this, we are moving towards a completely religionless time when people don't need religion anymore. Even those who honestly describe themselves as such do not in the least act up in accordance with what they claim. And so presumably they mean something quite different by it. It's very challenging stuff, very challenging stuff. I don't have time this morning to go into all of the implications of some of that. And, and most commentators now say this is unformed thinking that he would have moved on from in some way had he lived to do so. But it's very challenging because we do live in a very secularized era in so many ways. And this is what he was envisaging. Earlier than that, uh, he wrote in 1943 a book which he never finished because he got arrested called Ethics, simply Ethics. It's quite a substantial book, even though he didn't finish it. It's quite philosophical. Um, it's not the sort of thing that lends itself easily to a Lenten series. Um, it is uh, actually very challenging. And again, if I had the time, I'd love to spend a bit more time talking about it. But his best-known book is the one that I've already mentioned, written in 1937, uh, The Cost of Discipleship. And this is one which did get a huge international audience, been translated into numerous languages, um, and remains on the bookshop, uh, bookshelves of, of any reasonable bookshop. Uh, the, 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 the title's interesting. In English, called The Cost of Discipleship. In French, called The Price of Grace. He entitled it simply and the word's quite hard to get, get, to get the full resonance of. He entitled it um, uh, uh, a word that sort of means following or followership or being a follower. Not the same word as is used for disciple. And it's a word that has um, a sense of emulation, a sense of literally following after, a sense of succession. Prince Charles is the follower using exactly this word of Queen Elizabeth. So it's an interestingly loaded word, and it's just this one word that he uses as the title. I, I personally think we've lost a bit in using the phrase cost of discipleship for the English title, and indeed the price of grace for the French one. But there it is, the, the titles don't matter all that much. The content is extraordinary. It, is a, it consists of an essay on what he calls cheap grace and costly grace, about which Andy is going to talk next week and then a series of commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount. And you realize as you start to work your way through it, just exactly what Dietrich Bonhoeffer thought Jesus is challenging us to be and do. And it is not a comfortable read. Which brings me on to the third thing that I wanted to say this morning about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and that is about the challenge that he represents for us. Perhaps because of the times he lived in, he, above all, was painfully aware that there was nothing comfortable about being a Christian. There was no question for him 
of uh, it being possible to sit easily with material comfort, with the psychological comfort that comes from cosy community life, uh, with the uh, um, spiritual comfort, if you will, of routine worship and traditional norms and ways of going about things. For, for him, all of this became increasingly um, uh, 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 unacceptable in relation to what he felt Jesus was calling him and all of us too. For him, the cost, and here at least the English title is right, the cost of discipleship was very high. If you haven't understood that, he would argue, you haven't understood what it means to be a Christian. You can't be passive, he argues, in the face of the world's evil. And of course he was very conscious of the evil that was very in your face in Nazi Germany. But he was also conscious of the risks that you undertake when you act. The risks of not being passive and of being active come from the fact that we are not perfect. We do everything with mixed motives. And we are uncertain as to the outcomes of all that we do. And so finally, he was deeply conscious of the fact that in the end, all you can do is cast yourself on the grace and mercy of God. All of us, he argues, have that, as it were, moment not a, moment, not a moment in time necessarily, but a point in our experience when we become conscious that the only thing we can trust in and rely on is the mercy of God because we have tried, it has failed, we have let ourselves down, we have let others down, and yet we can't be passive. There's this horrible dilemma that he wrestles with all through his life. Why I think this is such a challenge is not only because he expresses this in very powerful prose, in, uh, in passionate pastoral uh, uh, writings like The Cost of Discipleship, or indeed in sophisticated philosophical writings like the book on ethics. In both cases, very clearly and passionately written. But the power comes not just from that, but the fact that it's so intimately bundled up with the facts of his own life. This was not an armchair theologian. This was not a person who allowed compartmentalization to, you know, I'll say all these things in, when I'm you know, giving my sermons or lectures uh, and, and live a rather different, normal, sort of more normal, more comfortable life. Uh, this was a person who uh, lived with the risks and the ambiguities of working for military intelligence and who wouldn't accept any watering down of the demands of followership. On April the 9th, 1945, he was taken out in the morning with several others. Um, a witness describes how he uh, uh, knelt in prayer, went to the scaffold and said, this is the end for the me, for me this is the end for me, the beginning of life. If there was anybody ever who took seriously the injunction that we've just heard read from St. Matthew's Gospel, that we have to take up our cross if we're serious, serious about following Christ, it was Bonhoeffer. I think that his 
writings deserve to be read for the foreseeable future. I think that some of it is inevitably dated and specific to the circumstances of Nazi Germany, but so much of it is much more universal and much more challenging uh, to all of us, uh, even in the 21st century, here in prosperous London. Um, and we should never uh, overlook the testimony of somebody who has lived out the life that Christ called him to, um, all the way through to a painful end. And yet knowing that this is the beginning, to use his phrase, the beginning of life. Thank you.